Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between for one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Jason, all this goes on the uh, Underhills, Bill? Yeah, Bill, I uh, saved his life during the war. You were in the war? No, he was. I got him out. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1985 comedy Fletch, starring Chevy Chase, Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, Tim Matheson, and Joe Don Baker. Directed by Michael Ritchie, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 38 minutes. Fletch is based on the 1974 mystery novel of the same name written by Gregory McDonald. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Chevy Chase is at his hilarious best in this suspense-packed comedy thriller based on Gregory McDonald's bestseller, Erwin Fletch. A.K.A. Fletch is an investigative reporter who's constantly changing his identity. While working on a drug expose, Fletch attracts the attention of a strange businessman, Tim Matheson, who wants to be killed so his wife will inherit more insurance. The wily Fletch senses a scam, and soon he's up to his byline in frame-ups, murder, police corruption, and forbidden romance. It'll be the story of the year, if he can stay alive to meet his deadline. Take fast-paced direction by Michael Ritchie, add an uproarious screenplay by Andrew Bergman, mix in a red-hot musical score by Harold Faltermeyer, and you've got the makings of Chevy's funniest chase ever. Meet the only guy who changes his identity more often than his underwear. Fletch. Fletch. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how are you doing? I'm feeling great, man, especially after this revisit of the Chevy Chase classic from the year 1985. Are you ready to get into this, my friend? Yes, let's move on to earliest memories. Jason, why don't you start us off? Thank you, Bill Band. I did not see Fletch in the theater. I came to this later on, similar to uh, Caddyshack, actually. But I'm pretty sure that I had seen National Lampoon's Vacation at this time. I was definitely a fan of Chevy Chase. I loved his Gerald Ford impersonation on SNL. So I caught this either on a uh, VHS or cable watch, and heck yeah. I mean, if Chase wasn't like already a star, this put him over the top for me, certainly. This is easily the Chevy Chase film I've seen the most. And I remember it a lot because this is the one I've seen the most. <laughs> Obviously, I have to start with the writing as to what I remember. It's immediately what I go to. It's the quick-witted, very clever, dry delivery, straight-faced one-liners that are coming at you a mile a minute. And they're all hilarious to me. This is what Chase does best. He's throwing 100 miles per hour. They're all fastballs coming at you nonstop. And I remember Fletch's Laker fandom, the Los Angeles Lakers, and uh, the mini hoop in his apartment. I remember all of his identity changes, the fake beard and the, the robe on the roller skates, the buck teeth and the ball bearings. John Cocktostoy, although I always thought I had remembered it wrong. I thought it was Cocktosin, but then I watched it. I was like, oh, thank goodness. I wasn't totally wrong. That's how Gail Stanwyck pronounces it. But originally he says Cocktostoy. Anyway, there's the Underhills, of course, and I remember the attack dog. And I remember that this is when I remember becoming aware of Tim Matheson as an actor. And Tim Matheson is still going. Love that guy. I've always had a thing for Dana Wheeler Nicholson as Gail Stanwyck. 
Tim Matheson's wife in this movie. Big fan of Dana Wheeler Nicholson. And of course, I remember the frame up and the this movie getting strangely dangerous at moments. This is a comedy thriller, and I always forget about there's a little bit of a thriller aspect of this. I remember that Gina Davis was in this before she was really Gina Davis. And of course, Harold Faltemeyer. You know, I'll talk about him a little bit more later. You know, here's an early memory, Bill Pan. I remember this movie made me look up the song Moon River because it's such an iconic quote from Chevy Chase in that particular scene, which I will touch upon later. But yes, Moon River, originally performed by Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, and that song had won an Oscar for Best Original Song. But Chevy Chase's version is better in my book. Mainly, I remember this is a simply, well, go-to movie. If you want to have an enjoyable time for an hour and 40 minutes, it's such an easy watch. When you catch it on TV, you're going to watch it for a while and just want to get to all the good parts. But they're all good parts to me. And I've seen it several times. I was looking forward to watching it again. Bill Bant, what are your earliest memories of Fletch? All right, Jason, you're not going to believe this, but I don't really have early memories of this movie. Meaning... Meaning, I can't remember specifically when or how I saw this movie for the first time. I do not believe that. This came out in 85. So I know I saw it before the sequel came out. But I know it was one of those movies all my friends had seen. And I think I was one of those last ones to see it. I think I finally rented it. But I can't be 100% sure. I think you touched on most of the high points of the movie. Just the many costume changes he was going through. He was always a different character. Every time he met someone else. This is something I'll, I'll talk about in initial thoughts, too, was just trying to figure out exactly what was going on, to be honest. I mean, it is a comedy. Absolutely. I'm going to touch on that as well. But yeah, that's really it. I don't remember the first time I saw it. I definitely have seen this a bunch of times. I think it's one of his better characters. It was a mystery to me to figure out when I had been introduced to Fletch. That's great, Bill Ben. I think you and I are exactly in the same boat then because you nailed it. I also had heard about it from friends. The quotes were on the playground, as I always say, and had to eventually check it out. So I came to it a bit later. Should we just move right into initial thoughts then? Yeah, go for it. Well, Bill Bant, if you want a bit more detailed description of where Chevy was in 1985, I urge you to go back to our National Lampoon's Vacation podcast and give that a listen. However, quickly, he's known for Saturday Night Live, Caddyshack, and Vacation up to this point in 1985. Uh, Yeah, you can throw in Under the Rainbow as well for us that were kids at the time. We liked that one. Moving right into the movie. And this is one of the first things I did, Bill Bant, because, again, one of my earliest memories is the fact that Gina Davis is in this. And I'm like, okay, I got to check out where is Gina Davis in the credits? She's listed ninth. In the film's opening credits and 10th on the Wikipedia cast list. It's amazing to me. I was just curious about that. And her character's name in this film is Larry. I know you were loving that. Yeah, right? A guy's name for a girl. Uh, She's Fletch's confidant and fellow reporter at the LA paper. Anyway, at the beginning of this film, we're introduced to Irwin Fletch, Fletcher, investigative reporter for an LA newspaper walking along the beach with a bit of Chevy Chase's narration. He's conversing with some down-in-their-luck locals that are small-time drug peddlers, and he's attempting to fit in and get a story. But it's when the dialogue ceases, and we see Tim Matheson from a distance, from a bridge overhead, checking out Chevy Chase with a pair of binoculars, that the Harold Faltemeyer Fletch synth music theme really kicks in, and it's the best thing ever. 
if there's one thing among many things, I guess I should say, really, that instantly brings me back to my childhood in the 80s, it's the music of Harold Faltemeyer. We've brought him up before on this very podcast. It's visceral and triggering in the best of ways, and I love it. It just immediately transports me, Bill Band. I can't get enough of his music. And somehow I forgot that Tim Matheson approaches Fletch right off the bat in this movie with his proposition. This movie wastes no time getting right into it. Don't need bothering with much preamble. Here's an 80s moment, Bill Bant. There's a scene between Fletch and his ex-wife's lawyer, whom he's supposed to be paying his alimony to. And Fletch is going through his mail and pulls out an Ed McMahon's American Family Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes letter. I hadn't thought about that for a minute. That was a thing. As a kid, I always hoped we win. That was just such a big deal when you get that in the mail. Uh, so that brought me back. I've decided that for any film involving an investigation following a reporter or a detective, that during the investigative interludes without dialogue, I'm just going to keep bringing up Faltermeyer's music. It's the only way to go. It just feels right somehow. So when you're watching Fletch go through the motions and put the clues together, I'm just tapping my fingers to Faltermeyer's music and singing along the whole time while Fletch is, is doing his thing. It's just great. But here's the thing. I want to be a Fletch. He literally does or appears to do whatever he wants whenever he wants. He simply gets by on his charm. Granted, he's living in what seems to be a modest and somewhat cluttered apartment. He's divorced because his ex cheated on him several times. But he leads a simple life with a tremendous confidence and a charm that's incredibly enviable. That's my opinion. Obviously has purpose. He cares about his reporting and his investigation, as we see in brief scenes, namely like trying to protect Gummy at one point. But both Fletch and Chevy Chase perform with such an effortlessness and a just roll with it attitude that I want to be this guy. And he, of course, is the essence of the movie. His attitude is the tone of the movie, and that makes it really attractive for me. I just want to watch him do his thing the whole time. It's that Beverly Hills Cop thing again. I said the vice versa thing when we did our Beverly Hills Cop episode. In that film, you know, we're just watching Eddie Murphy do his thing. It's the same thing here with Chevy Chase. This movie's all Chevy Chase. None of it works without him. I had forgotten how many steps there are to follow in this movie. Oh, yeah. Going to what you said. So many dots to connect along the way that it's simply impossible to remember everything and how this whole thing unfolds. I'm not joking. I actually wrote it out for myself. Good idea. Just to make total sense of it. But you just have to go with the flow and not worry about it to truly enjoy the movie. We know that Fletch is a reporter for an LA paper and is investigating two stories concurrently. One story about the rampant drug problem on the beach and how the cops may be involved. And one story about a man named Alan Stanwyck. That's Tim Matheson's character. That's hired Fletch to kill him. So Fletch begins tracking down the details of Stanwyck's life only to find out that Stanwyck's lied almost about everything. But the question is why? Why does he want Fletch to kill him? Okay, so we watched Fletch investigates every detail of Stanwyck's story, from his health issues to his health records to his financial issues, from his California Racket Club membership through his marital issues to his property ownership in Utah, his flight plans to his covert meeting with the police commissioner. And in between it all, he himself, Fletch, is being chased by the cops because he's interfering with their drug operation on the beach. Great. It's a lot. But who cares if it even makes sense of how he's getting where and when he flies to Utah twice in this movie? I don't know. It's all good. 95% of this film flows like smooth melted butter for me. We get the Angela Lansbury murder she wrote ending to explain it all. It's all good in my book. This is a laugh out loud, handful of times and chuckle the whole time type of movie, which is funny. I said before, it's a comedy thriller. For such an easygoing movie, Fletch's life is put in serious jeopardy more than a couple of times. Lastly, 
I got to give credit where credit is due, and it's not just Chevy Chase. It's Andrew Bergman's screenplay. The little credit to Phil Alden Robinson as well. But he took Gregory McDonald's book and did something special with it here because there are a lot of dots to connect, and there's a ton of writing. I loved watching this again today. So fun. What are your uh, initial thoughts? My initial thoughts will mirror a lot of what you said, but if you asked me the story of Fletch before watching this movie again, I would have totally effed it up. <laughs> Even now, trying to take some notes and pay attention, there's still some dots I've not been able to connect. It's a lot mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. complicated than I thought it was. Hopefully it'll be cleared up for me by the end of this episode. You have a better grasp of it than I do. I think the first couple of times I watched it, it was just more for the comedy aspect. I really wasn't paying attention to the story. And then when I started trying to figure out the story, whoa, yeah, there's a lot going on here. And even mm -hmm. now, uh, watching it the other day. All right, I think I got about 90% of it, but there's still 10% of it that I'm still a little bit hazy on. So sure, sure. I'll throw them out later. Yeah. Understandable. Dana Wheeler Nicholson. Does she have some of the best 80s hair of all time? <laughs> Love that hair. Hell yeah. Oh, my God. Love that hair. Yeah. Love her. What a cutie. Gina Davis. Oh, man. Every time she was on screen, I was smiling. She There was just something about her. So likable. Yeah, just being Fletch's um, right hand, confident. She kind of worked for the newspaper with Fletch and got all the information that she needed. As soon as he would show up to the office, she'd be running to him to see how she can help. I don't know, just something about that character I, I just love. Now, you mentioned Harold Faltemeyer. It was so funny. I mean, the last couple of days, knowing that we were doing this podcast, I could not stop humming the music from the movie. And, you know, if someone were to soundtrack my life, I think I would want Harold Faltermeyer to do it. And as much as I love John Williams, and you know, as much as I've gone to see him, I think I'd want Harold Faltermeyer to do it. I don't know. It just seems to fit me better. I have not been able to get out of my head for the last couple of days. Man, one of the fun things about going back and watching this movie, too, is there's so many actors that you just kind of forgot about that they're in this movie, and you just see them, and you're like, oh, my God, I forgot this person was in this movie. Oh, my God, I forgot this person in this movie. There was even one... And I don't want to accidentally step on our headset actor. I'll, I'll say it afterwards. I didn't even realize it was that actor who was in this. And then he was in something else. I, it wasn't even until I was looking through the credits. I'm like, wait a second, where was he? And I had to go back and I'm like, holy shit, that was him. I didn't even catch it. But yeah, the movie really is. It's almost like a string of vignettes. Yeah. You know, Chevy Chase essentially playing different characters and trying to squeeze comedy out of all these different situations. Usually when you have a movie like that, there's no plot. This movie is the opposite. There's so much plot that you really have to pay attention, <laughs> but you're kind of laughing at what's going on. So then you're kind of missing things. And I think that's what's kind of happened to me before. So really just trying to sit down and just focus and figure out like, all right, what does running drugs on the beach have to do with Alan Stanwyck? And how does this all, how did this all tie together? And why is he going to Utah? And why do we find out he has another wife? And what's this have to do with the property? And how is he getting all this money? And yeah, it was giving me a headache. But <laughs> I still enjoyed the movie. I really wish Chevy Chase had done more Fletch movies. Yeah, yeah, nailed it. Man, they shit the bed with the second one, which was weird because they didn't even base it on one of the books. I actually had read two or three of the books, uh, another ones that are based on any of the movies. But he should have been doing as many of these as he was doing the vacations. That should have been his one-two punch, either playing Clark Griswold or Fletch. So that's my initial thoughts. That's a great, great call right there at the end, man. Really, really nailing it. 
because this is Chevy Chase. This is tailor-made for him, and he kills it. What a great question for discussion. Who would be the composer of the soundtrack of your life? I love that idea, and it's so funny. I think it really would be the same for me, a toss-up between John Williams and Harold Faltermeyer. Man, Faltermeyer's music makes me feel good. Beverly Hills Cop, that lyrical soundtrack is better than this oh, soundtrack. Yeah, not even close. But Faltermeyer's score is better in Fletch. Correct. Overall. I mean, you have the Axel F piece, which is amazing. It's unassailable. Unassailable. It is repeated a lot in Beverly Hills Cop, but this one has more of an Correct. overall soundtrack to There's it. There's more yes, to it. Which I'd like. And that's what I was talking about with the interludes. While you're watching Fletch during the scenes where there's no dialogue, when he's doing his thing, for instance, when he goes to Provo, Utah to investigate the property issue, uh, supposedly Alan Stanwyck had bought a ranch for $3 million that he had gotten from his wife, Gail. And when he goes to the office at night, this property owner's office, in the middle of the night, the Faltermeyer soundtrack kicks in. And I even recognized that music. And it wasn't the main theme. It was more a little little bit of a subdued interlude music. And I even recognized that. Like I knew that because it's just so good. His score is a lot more fuller, if that yes, makes sense. I agree. Good call on that. All right. Uh, it's time to move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Fletch? And we might have some overlap, but that's okay. But maybe there's just different parts of the scenes that we like. <laughs> For sure. This is one of those movies where it's tough to pick your favorite scenes because there really are so many good scenes as Bill Bant so well put that it's just a string of Chevy Chase knocking it out of the park. So I'm going with my first favorite scene as, uh, well, just the setup. Everybody knows by now, if you've been listening to this podcast, Jason loves setups. And as I mentioned, this one gets right to it. Tim Matheson playing the role of Alan Stanwyck. Well, he approaches Fletch on an L.A. beach, thinking that Fletch is actually a junkie, uh, because Fletch has been spending a lot of time on the beach, kind of ingratiating himself with the local uh, drug dealers. Anyway, Tim Matheson offers Fletch $1,000 to take a meeting with him back at his house. Fletch is very wary of this and unsure, of course. He says something to the effect of, do I have to dress up like Bo Peep? But Stanwyck reassures him that his proposition is not of a sexual nature. So Fletch goes with Stanwyck back to his mansion, and they enter the mansion. And as they do so, Fletch makes a wisecrack, and Stanwyck accuses him of being doped up already. And Fletch fires back immediately, saying, don't talk to me like that ass face. I don't work for you yet. Love that line. He gets a little, he snaps oh, yeah. a little bit in this movie and they're great. They're stingers. And then uh, there's a maid that passes by as they're walking through the hall and she says, buenos dias. He returns with pup and taco. <laughs> and they enter Stanwyck's study and Fletch says, oh, you remodeled the garage. Must have cost you hundreds. It's <laughs> great. Stanwyck lays out his plan saying he's got bone cancer and he wants Fletch to kill him in order to collect on a very large life insurance policy that will be uh, paid off to the wife. She'll be uh, taking in all the money. But Fletch is still a little incredulous, of course, and Stanwyck continues to lay out the details, describing how it will be made to look like a robbery. And he says, oh, yeah, Fletch, do you own rubber gloves? And Fletch replies, I rent them. I'm leasing with an option to buy. So what do you say? Will you kill me? And then Fletch, just with a deep breath, responds... 
Sure. And Harold Faltermeyer's score kicks in and we're off. I just love the setup. I love this whole, it's just kind of a big mystery from the get. We get right to it. There's no time wasted. And boom, boom, boom. Chevy Chase just rattling off one-liners as he goes in to Stanwick's mansion and into the study. And it's like he just can't help himself. And it's just fun to watch. And this ridiculous idea that Tim Matheson's character, Alan Stanwick, comes up with to have Fletch kill him because nobody would care about Fletch. He's just a junkie. And it seems as though Stanwick's really laid out the perfect plan. And he's offered Fletch $50,000 to kill him. So it seems like a decent chunk of change. And it seems like he could get away with it. And Fletch agrees almost all too easily, but we know there'll be more to that because we know he's really an investigative reporter. But it's a fun setup. It's a fun way to start a movie. You're like, where is this going to go from here? I was thinking about putting this on my list, and I didn't. And what's interesting watching this again, Chevy Chase's Fletch is such a dick to Stanwick. And I keep thinking to myself, (laughs) because like I said, the story is where I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm like, why is Stanwick taking this abuse from Fletch? I'd be like, you know what? You're not the guy. I would just kick him out. But- he really does need him in order to pull off his con. So it made sense. Right. But when I was watching it, I just kept saying to myself, kick him out, man. Obviously, this guy's a dick. He's not going to help you out. You're going to have to go find someone else to pull off your suicide plan. But then it does make sense at the end when the big reveal is that Stanwick is looking for someone that is similar looking to him so he can do a, a switcheroo. But yeah, watching it, I was just like, right. why is he putting up with Fletch? You know what? Just get out. Here's some cab there. Go back to the beach. Go do your drugs. Get out of my face. Yeah, that's a good call, man. It's a good call. And just to clarify, Stanwick makes it a point to say that because his character, Alan Stanwick, is the executive vice president of Boyd Aviation, and they've taken a large insurance policy on on him. But the stipulation is, though, is you cannot collect on that policy if you commit suicide. So he has to experience a, a wrongful death, let's put it that way. And that's why he's put this plan into action with Fletch saying, you have to kill me. And he's saying, don't feel bad, obviously, because I want to die. I have I have this bone cancer and it's going to kick in in a month or so. And, and I don't want to experience that. And I want all this money to be rewarded to my wife. So we're supposed to kind of be sympathetic towards Stanwick, but it's all a lie. It's all, yeah, yeah. And then it's great because now he's laid out all these details and we know that Fletch is going to investigate every single thing that Stanwick has just laid out to make sure this whole thing is legit or not legit. And if it's not legit, why? Why is he doing this? But yeah, it's fun to watch Chase. Yes. Which now takes me to my first favorite scene. And it is Fletch first investigating Stanwick and finding out if Stanwick actually does have cancer. So Fletch goes to visit Stanwick's doctor, Dr. Joseph Dolan. That was my. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I I think between the two of us, hopefully we can get all this covered. And um, the doctor is played by the great character actor Emmett Walsh. And. What I love about this scene is Fletch is in there to try to get information about Stanwick's cancer, to find out that if this is true, because it's not every day someone comes up to you and asks you to murder them and will give you $50,000. So he's playing it off that he's a friend of Alan's and 
the doctor is he's trying to get information, but then he keeps talking himself in circles because there, there's a point mm-hmm. in the conversation where the doctor asks him, so where do you know Alan from? And Fletch goes, we play the tennis club. And the doctor comes back, oh, really? California racket club? And Fletch goes, right. And he goes, that's my club too. I don't remember seeing you there. So he's now painting himself in a corner and it's, well, how do you get yourself out? And then Fletch is like, well, I haven't been there in a while because, you know, I'm having the, the kidney pains. You know, they go on with the conversation, the whole babar, because Fletch just loves to throw out these crazy aliases of who he is. And, of course, he's saying his name's Babar, like the elephant from the classic children's novels. And then he asks him again about he's not, like, really a member, and his aunt goes there, and he's like, oh, who's your aunt? And he gives a name, and, of course, the doctor knows who one of the possible names is, and Fletch just makes a guess. And then we get to this whole thing where the doctor goes, oh, you know, it's a shame about Ed. He's like, yeah, it was really a shame to go suddenly like that. So luckily he guessed correctly that Ed had passed, but the doctor comes back with, well, he's been dying for years. Well, sure, but the end was very, very sudden. And the doctor's like, well, he was in intensive <laughs> care for eight weeks. Right. You know, when he actually died, it was very sudden. So it's just these kind of moments right. when, and, and he does this a lot throughout the film where he just gives out enough information that he might know to keep his con going, but in a way people kind of call him on it. And then he's got to circle around to figure out, all right, how do I talk my way out of this to get the information I need or to get out of this situation? And this is the, really the first example that you see of it with Fletch at the doctor's office. And of course we move into the famous moon river instance because if you're ever going to fake going to a doctor's don't say there's something wrong with your kidneys because you get the uh, type of exam um, most men do not enjoy taking especially in your the later years rectal yes. exam oh yep. yeah now that i've gotten older and that's goes right in your head that song god damn it no matter what <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's yeah that's classic so it, it lives it. with you forever yeah, what do you got on that scene, Jason? Yeah, it, that was my scene. Not my scene. My my next scene. It's our scene, Bill yes. Bad. Um, yeah, man, it is iconic. So, yeah, I love the fact that you brought up how Chevy Chase kind of gets him into these situations. And it is great situational comedy. So, Chase, he just starts these scenes off with such a confidence because he is so confident, he feels that the other character in the scene will just buy his story. And when they don't, they keep asking him questions, which is believable. You would. He has to keep telling lies and make, and it's just fun to watch him bury himself in these lies. And he has to improvise continuously and come up with more stories, which he does manage to pull off, which is just funny upon funny. But I love that he goes in with such confidence as if they're just going to buy it. And then he just has to keep going. He has to continue the lie. (laughs) It just gets buried in it, but he somehow gets out of it. And that scene, when the doc asks him about his name, I had copied and pasted these quotes because I love it when he says, that's an uh, interesting name, Mr. Babar. Oh, is that what with one B or two? One, B-A-B-R. That's two. Yeah, but not right next to each other. That's what I thought you meant. Well, isn't there a children's book about an elephant named Babar? Ah, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't know. I don't have any. No children? No elephant books. It's hilarious. I'm not doing it any justice, but you know it if you've seen it. There's just some great, great exchanges. 
And when Chevy Chase just belts out Moon River, you crack up every time. You know it's coming. You know it's coming. And you crack up every time. Hey, Doc, got the whole fist up there? That gets me every time, too. He's like, you sure Ellen's all right? Doc says, you know I can't discuss another patient with you. And Doc says, I can't find anything wrong with you. Fletch says, I'm sure it's not from a lack of looking. Got that right. Great scene. Yeah, so for me, I have a moment. So throughout the movie, as we mentioned, Fletch is an investigative reporter, and he's supposed to be doing this big piece on the drugs on the beaches of California. And the big holdup to the article is he can't figure out the main source of the drugs, where the drugs are coming into. He knows who's distributing them, but he doesn't know how this person is getting the drugs. So every time he shows up at the newspaper office, his boss, uh, Frank Walker, played by Richard Libertini, hopefully I said that right, is hounding him. When's this article coming out? We're advertising that this big article is coming out. I need to know. And Fletch kind of keeps blowing him off all the time. But there's one part where Frank kind of pins him down. I need to know what the hell's going on with this article. And Fletch says, can't do that, Frank. Fat Sam isn't the story. There's a source behind him. And Frank gets all excited. Who? Well, we're in kind of a gray area. And Frank comes back with, how gray? And just a delivery on this next line. When Fletch just goes, charcoal. And Frank's face like, it's great. You're not even close to getting this article done. Just cracks me up. Because it's so dry. And Frank finally thinks he's getting through to Fletch. That he's going to get this written. They're going to run this. And it's going to be a, one of the biggest stories of the year. And he realizes Fletch is not even close to getting this thing done. And he's going to be ruined if this doesn't happen. It just kills me. It's just a great moment. That's a wonderful moment. And it is just great. With, like you said, his delivery. When he just looks right at Frank and says, Charcoal? Have you ever had a friend like that? I have had a friend, uh, someone you know, Andy Buckley. Oh, yes. You know Andy Buckley. He was very similar to the Fletch character in that way, where he could never be serious. He just, there are certain people like that. And it is probably 80, 85% of the time, very winning. It's always charming. It's very funny because Andy was very quick-witted, but sometimes you become slightly frustrated because you could never have a serious conversation with the guy. So anytime you asked him a serious question, he would come with some snarky, clever, witty, dry response. And you'd be like, can you be fucking serious for a second, man? I'm trying to ask you a question. I need to find out this information. But he would say something like charcoal. Oh my God. Seriously? Makes me think of Andy Buckley. Miss that guy. Andy, if you're out there and you happen to catch this episode, let's catch up. Anyway, great, great moment. I'm going to call out then a moment myself, and I call it the dream about playing for the Lakers. This is a really funny moment that has nothing to do with the storyline at all in this movie. It's just the fact that Fletch is a fan of the Lakers. So we know that he's gone back to his modest apartment and he sees that his ex-wife's lawyer's car is parked out front. So he's going to go through the back alley and through what he calls the service entrance, which is the escape ladder going up into, what does he call it? The uh, lanai, his tiny balcony outside of his apartment out back. So he climbs up the escape ladder, gets onto his little balcony and who's waiting for him right there because he knew Fletch was going to go that way is the lawyer and great character actor. I can't think of his name offhand. Uh, George Weiner. Okay. Yeah. Who thanks. Saw in Spaceballs. Yes, thank you. Yeah, he's wonderful. And he is like, hey, 
you owe your ex-wife 800 plus dollars for alimony. It's like, oh, great. So they climb in the window and go into the apartment together. And Chevy Chase kind of pleads his case. And uh, the lawyer's like, I don't care. Pay me the money. Now, Chevy Chase had gotten $1,000 from Alan Stanwyck just to take the meeting for that whole story because he's going to go through this plan to kill Alan Stanwyck. So he just gives $1,000 to the lawyer to cover the fees. It's kind of funny. It's like, uh, here's a little extra, you know, put the difference towards the next month's alimony and uh, give yourself 10 bucks. Get a nice piece of ass. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> lawyer leaves and Chevy does this great thing because he's got this little mini basketball hoop, which a lot of us young tykes in the 80s would have those little Nerf hoops in our room, which was just the best thing. Well, he's got a little larger hoop and he's got an actual, like a little bit smaller sized basketball that he's tossing through the the hoop in his room. And he does this classic behind the back throw, uh, which I don't know. You always go, well, I wonder how many takes that took because he swishes it doing the old behind the back toss into the basket, goes into his room, decides to take a nap. And this, we get this really fun dream sequence and it's Chevy Chase in Laker uniform in the short shorts and the whole thing, the purple and gold. And he's got this full Afro and it's hilarious. You hear Chick Hearn, the classic Chick Hearn doing his announcing and Fletch standing at six foot five, but with the Afro, he's six nine. <laughs> he goes in for this like ridiculous layup and is defended by like 10 different guys. And you see a swarm of arms hitting him in the face. And Chevy Chase decides just to bite one of the arms <laughs> that's coming at him as if he's just taking all these charges. Uh, I should say defensive charges as he's going to the hoop and he sinks the basket, et cetera. It's just a ridiculous sequence. It's one of the many costumes that Chevy Chase wears throughout the film. And to see uh, a six foot five Chevy Chase in a tight Laker uniform with a Afro sticking up in the air. Very funny. Great moment. Yes, it is a funny moment. And the one thing I did catch watching it this time is the dream sequence starts off with Chick Hearn interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I was just about to say, that's another big Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sitting in the scene. And Kareem talks about how Fletch has been a big help to the team. But when Chick Hearn introduces Kareem, he introduces him as the all-time scoring leader, which just recently got broken Yeah, back in February by uh, LeBron James. I was like, oh, man, that statement's not true anymore. But it took that long for that to happen. And then the other thing I noticed, which was kind of funny, it's just like a blooper, is when we see Fletch on the court and you can see the top of it. It's only a half a court. I guess the way they mm. shot it, you could see that the court just kind of has an edge to it. It's not a full basketball court. I was like, oops, a little blooper in there. Someone didn't line the camera properly. But yeah, I don't That's think funny. the Fletch character in the books is a Laker fan. Because I remember when I read the books, I was so excited. It was like, oh, yeah, there's probably all this talk about the Lakers and stuff like that. But the ones I read are never mentioned. So I'm wondering why the Laker fandom came into the story, but I couldn't find any information about it. Yeah, they literally Hollywooded it up. They did. Made it L.A.-based. Yeah, it's cool to see uh, Kareem. Is Fletch L.A.-based, though, in the books? From what I remember. I've never read the books, obviously. I don't remember that mention. Yeah, I didn't know if he was L.A. based and they just didn't mention his fandom for any team or if he wasn't L.A. based at all and it just wasn't uh Yeah, because I character. read like two of the Trait. later ones and I think at that point he wasn't working for a newspaper anymore. It was more of like I was previously a newspaper reporter. Gotcha. All right, so my final – this is kind of more of like a running gag throughout the film than like a scene. So maybe it's multiple moments and it's just Fletch getting back at the Underhills. Yes, that's great. Then that's probably part of my scene as well. So go for it, man. It's great stuff. Just, I mean, it's part. Yeah, 
It's all iconic stuff. So once Fletch learns that Alan doesn't have cancer, he goes to find Alan's wife, Gail, that's played by Dana Wheeler Nicholson, and he finds her at the California Racquet Club. And while he's looking for her, he notices that there's a couple that's having lunch, and the husband is berating one of the staff. Because the staff wants to go pick up his plate and he starts yelling like, hey, there's still food on there. Why did you take that? Put it back down. And then he literally takes the food and pops it in his mouth. And he's like, all right, you can take my plate now. And the staff takes a plate and he's like, yeah, if you, thought, if you think you were getting a tip, you can kiss that one goodbye. So this guy's being a real dick. Right. So let's just going to uh, take advantage of it. So while he's at the club, one of the other staff comes up to him and obviously they don't recognize him and says, um, sir, who are you here with? And he goes, oh, I'm with the Underhills. And the staff member says, oh, the Underhills just left. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know. They'll be right back. You went to go get like, I think it was your analysis or something like some some goofy quip that he th- throws out. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And the staff goes, well, do you want something to eat while you wait? I'll put it on the Underhills bill. So he's like, oh, sweet. Let me get back at him. So this is the first step. So he orders a drink and two steak sandwiches. And then he goes to talk to Gail just to find out more about her and what her relationship with Alan is. Well, it doesn't stop there. He comes back to the record club at another time. And the same, I think it was, I think it's actually the same staff member comes up to him again. And Fletch asks him, oh, where's Gail Stanwyck? Go, oh, she's over in Cabana A. He's like, oh, can you bring us over lunch? And the staff's like, do you want me to charge to the Underhills? He's like, yes. And he's like, I want two things of caviar, two bottles of champagne, the lobster, like lobster dish, and put down $30 for yourself, too. So, of course, he goes and meets with Gail and fills him in all the information he's gotten up to this point about Alan. And uh, Mr. Underhill started knocking the cabana because now he's gotten this bill for $400. He doesn't know where the hell it's coming from. And the staff's telling him it's a friend of his. So you're like, okay, you got the joke. He's been caught. That's the end of it. But at the very end of the movie, when everything's all resolved and at the end and Fletch and Gail are together, they end up going to this trip to Rio. And the very last line of the movie is... By the way, I charged the entire vacation to Mr. Underhill's American Express card. Want the number. Yes. So, Fletch has a little good side to him. He sees how Underhill was treating the staff, and uh, he kept trying to give it back to him as much as he can throughout the movie. So I thought that was kind of cool. And uh, how many times you've actually heard someone use the Underhill line in just a joking matter? Like, if you talk to someone and say Underhill, they know exactly what you're talking about. Anytime I hear Underhill, it just makes me chuckle. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's a great way to end the movie. It's a runner throughout the fact that Fletch uses the Underhills uh, in order to pay for things. And then the Underhills have to take the bill. And you're right. It is one of those things you hear in popular culture still all the time. And besides the Moon River quote, it's the Underhills as well in this very scene that you covered, which is also my favorite scene where Fletch shows up dressed up for tennis at the California Racquet Club when he approaches Gail Stanwick and says, I'm John. And she says, oh, John, John who? And he says, John Cocktolstoy. And she says, that's a beautiful name. Scotch-Romanian. Well, that's an odd combination. So are my parents. And that John Cocktolstoy, or later on when she says John Cocktosin, that is also used all the time. You'll hear people say that all the time when they're trying to make up a fake name for themselves. It's just a great exchange between him and the beautiful Dana Nicholson. And 
she's terrible at tennis and it's just funny. He's trying to help her with his her stroke. And by the time he instructs her, the balls run out of the machine and he's hitting on her. It's very clear, but he's trying to find out information on Alan. So he's pumping her for information a, a little bit and she's not giving up a whole lot, but she knows he's also very much hitting on her and it's very clear. And she's like, if I had a nickel for every one of Alan's flyboy buddies that hit on me, I'd be a rich woman. And she's like, you are a rich woman. Yeah. See what yeah, I mean? That's her best line. There's some very clever back and forth dialogue there. They have a good chemistry and she's hot. So I'm all for it. But that moment, like you said, when he's immediately taking advantage of the underhills because they're not good people. They're the bad rich people. You know, the, the, the rich people we like to hate because they're jerks to the, the wait staff and the waiter comes over to Fletch and asks for his order and says, put him on Underhill's bill. I'll take a Bloody Mary and a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich. I just love the way, again, the way he delivers that is just great. So that's all I'll add. That was my, my third favorite scene. Yeah. When he goes to the California Rectical. There's a funny little moment that I absolutely love. It's just the first shot of him walking up to the club and he's got his tennis racket with the cover on it and he's pretending to just kind of practice his swinging stroke and he lowers the racket and whacks like an expensive car. Oh, yeah. The door. It's just kind of funny. It's just <laughs> he does such stupid shit. You know, for how smooth and charming Chevy Chase is, it's not to be overlooked that he's a wonderful physical comedian. I, you know, mentioned early on that I'm a huge fan of his Gerald Ford impersonation, which I believe Ford himself is not a big fan of, but Ford had made some clumsy mistakes, you know, that was made a bit of a deal in the press or whatever. But uh, Chevy Chase took it a step further in his SNL sketches and acted very clumsily in the sketches as Ford. So you could see it there, but here in this film, as kind of cool and charming. I mean, Chevy Chase, six foot four, six foot five, good looking man, you know, and, but he can be very, very goofy and clumsy. And he falls several times in this movie, which kind of leads me to uh, another moment I'll bring up, which is one of my favorite disguises in this film. And don't worry, ladies and gentlemen, I know I'm, I'm overlooking the scene with the, the wig and the, the buck teeth when he's talking about the ball bearings. We all know it's classic, can't cover everything. I'm moving right into the bearded disguise in the robe on the roller skates. I just love this moment. He's back on the beach. This is in the third act of the film and the cops are after him and he's got to get back to the beach because he needs to talk to the local uh, small time drug peddlers, namely Gummy, and then the actual drug dealer who hangs out on the beach, which is Fat Sam, played by the wonderful George Went. And Chevy Chase can't show up as himself as Fletch. So he's in this bald cap with sparse hair on his head and a full beard and a full robe roller skating down the boardwalk while there's some very obvious cops undercover as surfers looking on from the side and he's roller skating and he does this very obvious turn he does like a swivel on his roller skates and throws his arms up in the air and does this move and it i laughed out loud because he's literally showing off but he knows the cops aren't going to recognize him it's a wonderful disguise he's in great makeup oh yeah it doesn't even really look like him until you hear his voice and you see him up close and then he drops onto the beach next to gummy one of the little uh junkies and starts talking to him and then finds out from gummy that the police commissioner himself is actually the main source of the drugs that's where the drugs are coming from it's the police chief that's pushing the drugs onto the beach the police are actually the 
police chiefs in charge of the drugs that are running on the beach. And it's just a really fun disguise. But there's another, that's an example of his physical comedy, not just the roller skates, but when he's trying to get up on the sand after talking to Gummy, he slips on his roller skates and falls face first in the sand. It's just another chuckle moment where you're going, this guy is ridiculous. He's ridiculous. It's hilarious. Yeah, that is good stuff. Do you have any other uh, moments or scenes? I've got one really, really small shout out about a moment, but uh, that's all I've got. Go ahead. I try to keep it at three. Just because I'm a sci-fi fan, it's at the very end of the movie when all is resolved and Chevy Chase is about to take Dana Wheeler Nicholson down to Rio de Janeiro on vacation. He throws on a USCSS Nostromo hat. And if you're a fan of Alien... That is the ship from the Ridley Scott film Alien. I actually had a USCSS Nostromo hat. I just love that, that he has that hat from Alien. Nice. Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. So yeah, let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does yes, have holes. It doesn't fall under Swiss cheese. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right. I think this is Swiss cheese, but most of my questions are just really going to just be about the plot. And hopefully Jason, you can help me out with some of this. So we find out by the end of the movie that Alan Stanwyck is going to kill Fletch and then use his passport to go to the airport, pick up his actual wife, who is named Sally Kavanaugh, and take the $3 million that he swindled from Gale and live in Rio. Correct. But Alan knows Fletch as Ted Nugent. That's the name that Fletch initially gives Alan when they first meet. So... There's a scene when Fletch goes to the airport to see about the flight, but it says the flight is to for Alan Stanwyck and Sally Kavanaugh. But wasn't Alan supposed to switch identities? So shouldn't he have booked the flight for Ted Nugent? Because that's he's got to fly now under that alias because Alan Stanwyck is supposedly dead. That was one of the things that confused Absolutely. me. Absolutely. I think that's a great call. I think that's a that is a hole for sure. I think that's a really good call. Yeah, it does make sense in the way that at the end, how would also let's say yes, the tickets were booked under the name Ted Nugent, and we know at the end that there's a switcheroo here that 
Alan Stanwyck is actually not, he's going to kill Fletch. He's not going to have Fletch kill him. He's reversing it and he's turning it around. He's going to kill Fletch and assume his identity. But he thinks Fletch's name is Ted Nugent. But then Fletch, so he's like, hey, Fletch or Ted Nugent, put your passport on the desk because he's going to use his passport. But his passport is going to have the name Irwin Fletcher. Correct. It wouldn't have Ted Nugent. No. So the passport's not going to work either. Right. I mean, at that point, too, Fletcher thinks he has everything figured out. He's going to have Stanwyck arrested. But yeah, if Stanwyck's got the upper hand and still could pull off the rest of his con, yeah, he would have been screwed. That's a great hole. And I think this is ties into a little bit of what you were saying earlier when we're talking about there's a lot of plot elements and, again, connecting the dots and trying to figure out how it all fits together. Because I mentioned there are two separate stories running concurrently, but then the stories intertwine at the end. And my big question, which could be Swiss cheese slash complaint, is that, is it all necessary? (laughs) Because we have just a whole string of scenes of Chevy Chase investigating the details of Alan Stanwyck's life, trying to figure out if Alan Stanwyck is full of shit And if he is, then why is he doing this? And in the middle of the movie, Fletch is tailing Alan Stanwyck and watching him as he puts gasoline cans in his trunk. And then he discovers that Stanwyck's been doing some business. He he does a business transaction with the police chief, Carlin. And this begs the question, why wouldn't Fletch be tailing Stanwyck the whole time just to figure out what he was doing versus going off on his own? trying to track down every single aspect of his life when he could just simply follow Stanwick to figure out what he was doing, like staking out Stanwick, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think that's the big difference in the book is in the book, it is two separate instances, but then it accidentally converges on the end. Whereas this mm-hmm. in the movie, we think they're parallel, but they've been intertwining the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like my really, my big question is, how did this whole con start and work from the get-go? Because if Alan has been married to Sally Kavanaugh for eight years, he somehow picks Gail Stanwyck to be the foil to this con. So he's got to meet her, win her over, marry her, get the money, then fake his death, meet up with his wife, and run off with Gail's money. Right there, that's a lot. Right. But then somehow Chief Carlin is in this picture, which I, I, this part I still can't figure out is we see a picture. Oh my God. Microfilm, which I remember using that in the libraries and I never, and never getting any information out of it. That was such a waste, but it was just kind of cool to use the machines. But we see a picture of the chief with Atlan. Okay, great. They've met at some point, but. How does the chief get Alan to run drugs from South America or wherever he's getting them from? Maybe it's Mexico. I don't know. I think the guys in the at where Alan works joke that he goes to South America. But why is he getting the drugs for the chief? What What is he getting out of it? Does the chief figure out that Alan has been married twice? I still can't figure out why the two of them are in cahoots. My theory is just that that's something you just have to go with, the fact that they are in business together as drug dealers. I mean, Alan Stanwyck was a test pilot turned commercial airline pilot turned drug runner from South America. He's running drugs to the beaches of L.A. 
he combines his efforts with the police chief to bring the drug is, the, the drugs to the beaches of L.A. And they have a business deal. So Alan Stanwyck flies the drugs in from South America, gives it to the police chief. The police chief gives him money, gave him $800,000 to be exact. And the police chief then is the main source of the drugs, which then trickles down to Fat Sam, which then trickles down to the junkies on the beach. Yes, it gets more convoluted because we know that Alan Stanwyck, while he's been in L.A., has been leading a double life. In order to become wealthy, because he was a pilot, he decides to marry Gail Boyd. Gail Boyd is of the Boyd Aviation family. So then Alan Stanwyck, as a pilot, rises through the ranks of Boyd Aviation, becoming the executive vice president, and then gets access, obviously, to Gail, because she now is his wife. And Gail uses the Boyd family money, her money, to be exact, sells some stocks, gets $3 million worth of cash to buy some property in Provo, Utah, a ranch to be exact. But that $3 million ends up just going into Alan Stanwyck's pocket. So now Alan Stanwyck has $3 million from the Boyd family and gets $800,000 from the police chief. And once he's got all that cash, decides to fake his own death by having Fletch kill him and flee back down to South America. Right. So why does he need Gail's money if he's running drugs with the chief? I mean, that should be a nice profit right there. Don't you think? I guess that just wasn't enough. Greed is a bitch. Yes. So that's where I get confused. It's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a like, lot, why does man. He target There's Gail a lot going on. What, I want to know how the chief and Alan devised this. I think Alan's got a lot going on. I think, you know, he's got a he's got two things going on himself. He's got the con, the long con he's running with Gail and the Boyd aviation family. And then he's got the drug business with the police mm -hmm. chief. So he's a busy man and he's not a good guy. No, he's not a good guy. <laughs> so there you go, ladies and gentlemen, listeners out there. Did we kind of explain the plot for you a little bit more thoroughly? Did any of that make sense? Because we get to figure that all out or try to figure that out as Chevy Chase is putting together the clues, but it gets a little convoluted. And it's, you made a good point, Bill Band, is that because there's so many one-liners that you're trying to listen to in your paying attention and you just want to laugh, that you do get a little tripped up on some of the details. You're like, oh, I now I don't know what's going on. I was just laughing. Yeah. The so time. for the listeners, so what happens in the book is the chief accidentally kills Alan because he mistakes him for Fletch because of the same body build. And that's kind of how that happens. They're, they're never in cahoots together in the in the book. But the chief was following mm. and then thought Alan was Fletch and shot Alan instead. Gotcha. Well, that's good stuff, Bill. Here's one of my complaints. We know in the beginning that when Alan is explaining to Fletch his plan to have Fletch kill him, saying, I'm about to die from bone cancer and I've got this big life insurance policy that I can only collect if it's a wrongful death, if you murder me, etc., well, Alan says, you're perfect, Fletch. You're the perfect person to do the job. You're a junkie. Basically, Fletch is like, are you sure you know I'm the right guy? And he's like, yes, I've been watching you for two weeks. I know all of your moves. You're the right guy. Alan really thinks that Fletch is a junkie named Ted Nugent. Shouldn't he be smart enough to do a little bit more recon than just watch Fletch at the beach? 
this is such an ingenious plan, then shouldn't he be following Fletch wherever he goes and thus wouldn't he eventually find out he was a reporter for the LA paper? It's it just Alan Stanwick is a smart guy. He's been running a long con and he's a millionaire, etc. And he's deciding that, well, my genius plan is to set up this junkie from the beach. I'm going to watch him from a distance with my binoculars, but I'm going to watch him for two weeks and follow his every movement. And if he's really following Fletch, he would know that Fletch is not just a junkie on the beach. It's just, uh, I think he's not as smart as he pretends. And he doesn't even look like a junkie, to be honest. No, not really. Look, I'm, I understand there's a just go right. with it factor here, but my point is that Stanwick didn't do his due diligence no, not here. At all. I you felt know. the same way. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. I wouldn't say this was a complaint, but I found this kind of surprising in the middle of the movie. So Fletch goes back to Utah to find Sally Kavanaugh, to find out where, where she is, and he goes into her house. And in the mm-hmm. middle of the scene, he pulls out a cigarette and starts smoking. But that that just surprised me for some reason. I don't know why. It just seemed it's the only time we see him with a cigarette throughout the whole movie. And why are you smoking in the house? That just gives away that someone right. was in there. I mean, as soon as you walk in, you would know, like, wait, someone's in my house. I smell smoke. It's a strange choice. I thought totally that was agree. really weird. I totally I agree. I t- it's It really stood out yeah. to me. Maybe it's a complaint. It's just a weird choice to make at that moment to all of a sudden smoke. I agree. Great call. Hey, man, this movie's only an hour and 38 minutes long, so that's a great running time. I love it. But if I had to cut something, man, this is kind of a complaint for me. There's a stretch where Fletch commandeers a vehicle that has a young kid in braces who doesn't have a license, and the kid also happens to be a car thief himself, and... Basically, Fletch hops in this car and takes this kid and the cops that are chasing him on a joyride car chase, which then leads to an entire sequence where Fletch dons the identity of a waiter at a, is it supposed to be like a VFW hall ceremony? Correct. Right. That he, he kind of gets in the middle of, which is kind of fun. But I, and I get that they needed to break up what could be considered, like considered a standard follow the breadcrumbs investigation story, that they had to break it up with some action. But it goes a bit too far for me, stretching the suspension of disbelief a bit. It's over the top and a little silly for me. The car chase going into that extended VFW hall ceremony where he's pretending to be a waiter and then rallying the guests to applaud for the cops in order to give him time to get away and stuff like that. Anyway, it was a bit much for me. It's fun, but... Yeah, if the car chase never happened, I wouldn't have missed it. I'd rather have him play another one of his characters instead, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. If I had to cut a scene, that would be it. Good call. I would cut that one too. Those two scenes. Yeah. That's all I got, really, man. All right. Last one. This is kind of funny. Absolutely. For someone who doesn't know how to play tennis, the fact that Gail was able to knock out the chief with a tennis racket by just hitting him on the shoulder. That's a, I was like, if she swung <laughs> and hit him in the back of the skull or something, like, I would have been okay with that. But she just kind of, boop, right in the shoulder and chief goes out cold. It's basically a William Shatner, Captain Kirk, karate chop to the neck. That immediately knocks him out. She just does it with a tennis racket. It's pretty weak. It's really yeah. funny. They should have put in your your sound effect. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. As she swung down very lightly on his neck and knocks out a 250-pound police chief. Yeah, that ending needed to be a little bit better. Joe Don Baker. Uh, yeah. As police chief Carlin. Great. Yeah. Played a good villain in this. He can be pretty damn intimidating when he mm-hmm. wants to be. Yeah, I liked him. All right, let's move on to, hey, it's an actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. 
Jason, who did we select for this episode? For our Hey, It's That Actor, I'm choosing William Sanderson, who plays the role of Swarthout, the property owner in Provo, Utah, who had supposedly sold a $3 million ranch to Alan Stanwyck, but Alan had lied about that because the deed that Fletch finds at Swarthout's office is for $3,000 worth of scrub brush. Anywho, William Sanderson, wonderful character actor over a handful of decades, you know, might be known by us sci-fi fans for his role as Sebastian in Blade Runner from 1982, working for the Tyrell Corporation. However, and this next part is mostly taken from IMDb, William Sanderson achieved his greatest popularity as the flaky backwoodsman Larry on 91 episodes of the hit sitcom New Heart from 1982 to 1990. Hell yeah. On which he uttered the memorable catchphrase, I'm Larry, this is my brother Daryl, and this is my other brother Daryl. More recently, William Sanderson has had a terrific role as the conniving hotel proprietor E.B. Farnham on the sensationally gritty cable Western TV series Deadwood back in 2004. William Sanderson has done a lot of guest spots on TV over the years, everything from The Practice to Walker, Texas Ranger, to Matlock, to Babylon 5, to Mary with Children, Dukes of Hazard, Starsky and Hutch. That's way back in 1975. This guy's been around. So yeah, William Sanderson. Uh, since Deadwood in 2004 uh, and a little after that, uh, his IMDb doesn't really list anything. However, he seems to have an upcoming project entitled Assassin's Fury. There you go. The great William Sanderson. Those are, hey, it's that actor. So let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Fletch? All right. Bear with me. I'm going to run through this quickly. Following the publication of Gregory McDonald's Fletch in 1974, King Hitzig Productions acquired the novel's film rights. After multiple attempts to get cameras rolling at Columbia Pictures, production on the film stalled and the rights were eventually acquired by producer Jonathan Burroughs in 1976. After Columbia Pictures passed on the film, Burroughs shot the film around at every studio in Hollywood. Trying a new tactic, Burroughs submitted the script with a different title and put it in a different colored binder. Despite these efforts, there were still no takers. Burroughs credits Michael Douglas, who much earlier was considered for the lead, for having the foresight and wherewithal to get the film made. His half-brother, Peter Douglas, ultimately co-produced the film through his film production company, Vincent Pictures. Yeah, so here's the list of the studios that turned it down. Newline Cinema, Columbia Pictures, 20th Century Fox, United Artists, Warner Brothers, American International Pictures, General Cinemas, CBS, EMI, Allied Artists, NBC, Zanuck Brown, Viacom, First Artist, MGM, Paramount, and Time Life Films. Making movies is not easy. Unbelievable. It's crazy. And that's really the theme of my fun facts and trivia segment, personally, because uh, it really is all about the process here and how these movies can get stuck in development hell. So... I'm glad you went over that list of those that passed on this film. When McDonald's Fletch books were optioned, the author retained the right to veto casting choices. He rejected both Burt Reynolds and Mick Jagger as Fletch. When the studio mentioned Chevy Chase as Fletch, McDonald agreed, although he had never seen Chase perform. Throughout the early stages of development, Jeff Bridges, Charles Grodin, and Barry Bostwick were among those considered to play Fletch. George uh, Siegel, 
was at one point considered, but turned it down. Burroughs also wanted Richard Dreyfus after Chase initially rejected the part. Years later, Chase told Burroughs that he never knew about the original offer and that it was his then-manager who rejected it. In a 2004 interview with Entertainment Weekly, Chase confirmed this was his favorite and most successful part. Um, yeah, when I saw some of those names, I think Brian Bostick was the only one I was like, eh, maybe. It's one of those, when you look back, it's hard to separate right. Chevy Chase from the role. Now it's kind of like Harrison Ford with mm. Indiana Jones, that type but, of thing. But yeah, Mick Jagger, yeah. Burt Reynolds, yeah, no way. No, that's not even close. Yeah, even when I read the books, I, I still had Chase in my head when I was reading them. Yeah, I, I really couldn't see someone else at the time doing it. So this is kind of funny. I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to share it anyway. So supposedly that banquet that Fletch interrupts is uh, held for Fred Dorfman, the brother of Kent Dorfman, right. a.k.a. Flounder. So one of the frat brothers from Animal House. It's supposed to be a, a callback to that. I don't know. It's not necessarily, it's not National Lampoon's Fletch, but I thought that was kind of neat if that was actually the case. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh, yeah, that's great, man. I love it. Please correct me if I'm wrong. If that's, I, I'm trying to figure out what that ceremony was for. Like, I, we know it's for the Dorfman person, but where is that taking place exactly? It just felt like a VFW kind of situation, but I didn't know if what. No, I don't really know either. It didn't, I couldn't tell from the banner. I was just making an assumption. Please let me know if I'm making a mistake there. So Bill Bant had mentioned this earlier. This is the last I have, and this is a little bit long-winded, so bear with me. The film was followed by a 1989 sequel, Fletch Lives. A follow-up to Fletch Lives had been discussed in the 1990s at Universal Studios. During his association with Universal after the production of Mallrats, Kevin Smith expressed interest in doing a third Fletch film as a sequel starring Chevy Chase, but it never came to fruition. In June 2000, it was announced that Kevin Smith was set to write and direct a Fletch film at Miramax Films after the rights to the books, which Universal Studios had owned, reverted. At the time, Miramax co-head Harvey Weinstein expressed the hope that a new Fletch series would be Miramax Films' first ever series. In August 2003, it was reported that the film was set to start shooting in January with Kevin Smith still at the helm. Though Smith insisted on casting Jason Lee in the lead role, Miramax head Harvey Weinstein refused to take a chance on Lee, citing the general inability of his films to gross more than $30 million at the box office. The role of Fletch remained uncast, with Smith considering a list of actors including Affleck, Brad Pitt, and Jimmy Fallon. Though Smith considered compromising and casting Zach Braff in the role, he eventually left the project in October 2005. In July 2020, many years later, it was announced that a reboot was back on at Miramax based on the second book in the Fletch series, Confess Fletch. John Hamm spearheaded the project as both star and producer with Greg Matola directing and Zev Burrow writing. Confess Fletch began filming in June... 2021. It was released in a limited theatrical run and premium video on demand on September 16th, 2022. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm a fan of Confess. Oh, you have seen it? With John Hamm. I did see it. I saw it on an airplane with my dad. Nice. Okay. Because I saw it too. And I figured I'm one of the few that actually saw it. I know. I mean, according to the box office numbers, no one saw it. This is what I would say about the movie. I did miss the music. I actually miss the music sure. more than I miss Chevy Chase being in the character. I thought Ham was fine 
I'd almost say if it wasn't a Fletch movie, it would be more enjoyable because I think you're too busy trying to compare it to the original hmm. Fletch. I still liked it, but I think most people, because it's not Chevy Chase, are not going to watch it. But I think the film itself is good. And it is very twisty and plotty, just like not as bad as Fletch is, but you still really have to pay attention. I thought Ham did a good job. Yeah, I thought it was really enjoyable. I thought John Ham was more than capable. He's uh, extremely likable. And yeah, I thought he handled it really well. I thought it was a lot of fun. Very similar. Had a same the same flavor. But yeah, I mean, it's not quite the same, but I thought they, they handled it really well. It's worth watching. I would definitely recommend it. Just try to let go of the Chevy Chase films if you can for an hour and a yeah, half. Yeah, just so. consider it just any other kind of mystery movie. And I think, it, I think it'll work for you. Absolutely. And then it's just fascinating to me how this stuff gets stuck in development. Hell, this was to be, you know, a third Fletch sequel that Kevin Smith had worked on for a number of years that just never, ever came to see the yeah. light of day. That's just how it goes. Unbelievable. All right. So here's my last fact of trivia. So this just makes you think how much of this movie ended up on the cutting room floor. So while in Chief Carlin's office, Fletch punches a framed photo of Los Angeles Dodge Tommy Lasorda saying, I hate Tommy Lasorda. So in a sequence of the that was filmed but cut, Fletch has another fantasy moment akin to the Lakers dream where he's pitching in the World Series and Lasorda pulls him from the game. Even though the sequence didn't make it to the movie, um, there's supposedly existing production stills of Fletch on the pitcher's mound and Lasorda coming to take the ball away from him. So that's why he hates Lasorda, because he pulled him from the World Series game. Because I thought that was kind of weird, too. I'm like, how can you be such a Lakers fan and not like the Dodgers? Right. Makes sense to me now after I read this. Good stuff, So let's move on to box office. So Fletch was released on May 31st, 1985 in 1,225 theaters. On an estimated budget of $8 million, it grossed $46.7 million domestically. The film opened number two at the U.S. box office behind Rambo, First Blood Part Two, then dropped to number three for the following two weeks, and then dropped out of the top ten by its seventh week. Fletch was the 15th highest grossing movie domestically in the U.S., just behind another Chevy Chase film, which was also released in 1985, National Lampoon's European Vacation. But you can say Fletch made more money because National Lampoon's European Vacation's budget was more than twice of Fletch's. So then on to reviews. When growing up in the 80s, we would watch at the movies with Cisco and Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Fletch was split. Gene found the movie to be funny, exciting, full of authentic villains that scare the character of Fletch just enough that Chevy Chase's humor works in the movie. Roger found Chevy Chase to be the problem because his dialogue undermines the premise of the movie. The difference of opinion right there. So Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 77% and it has an IMDb rating of 6.9. And the interesting thing about the Siskel cool. and Ebert is it sounds like Gene Siskel was not a fan of Chevy Chase. So the fact that he actually liked this movie was a huge deal. He just always thought he was just too smug for his movie. So for him to give it high praise is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Gotta love Roger Ebert, man. We when we do love him. I grew up with a guy, but he had a thing with certain types of comedy. It, oh, yeah. He didn't take to it. Just didn't take to it. All right, so let's move on to additional thoughts and questions. Where's some additional thoughts and questions we have about Fletch? 
Well, Bill Bant, here we have the classic what-if scenario. At least that's what I was thinking. I mean, with the proposition that Alan Stanwick presents to Fletch, I'm assuming, Bill Bant, that you wouldn't do it, of course. But the question is, how long would you think about it if someone came to you and said, I'm dying and I have this life insurance policy and I want the money to go to my wife and I want to be put out of my misery and here's $50,000. Well, that was $50,000 in 1985. Adjusted for inflation, that's $141,000 today. Not to mention the $2,820 you'd get for simply taking the meeting. So I'm going to round up and just say, let's say, um, say someone offered you $150,000 to put them out of their misery, Bill Bant. How long would you, would you think about it? It's not enough. I agree. Getting caught and going to jail. I always joke if I was to commit a crime, it would have to be enough money that I could retire comfortably for the rest of my life. $150,000 is not going to do that. I agree. Not enough. Definitely not enough. And that plan would have to be perfect, obviously, to get away with it. Like, I would have to be so convinced. And I, the person that was trying to, to convince me of this, I just don't know if I could, I could come to terms with you. But yeah, if I were to do it, it'd have to be a great deal more money. Bill, here's a question for you, Bill Bant. How, how many days do you think this takes place over? That's always a thing, right? We're always trying to figure out the time span in a movie. Sometimes I got I got a little bit lost with because it seems, feels like it's the beginning of the week, maybe when he gets this proposition from Alan Stanwyck, and he's supposed to kill him on Thursday night. Right, and the fact that he has to fly out to Utah twice. It just seems like it's supposed to take place over a few days, but he feels feels like he does a whole lot in just a few days. It would literally have to be a week. From the start of the movie to the end, I would say a full week. Mm -hmm. If you talk about the whole situation itself, we're talking like five, six years because the whole... Because we never find out how long Alton and Gail are married. Right. It must have not been that long because we know that he had married Sari, uh, Sally Ann Cavanaugh eight years before. So if he had to meet Gail and marry her after Sally Ann Cavanaugh, I think maybe a couple of years later, they've probably been married five years, maybe six we years. Could, we might, you know what, you could probably go back in the movie and find that out because when Fletch is with Larry, they find a photo of them married and it mentions that Alan's parents didn't come to the wedding. So I'm wondering if there's a date on there. Right. Not that I don't know how that would coincide with everything else, but <laughs> if there's something else you could find with a date on it, then maybe you could figure that out. Because that's a long time. I love that we've turned into investigative reporters investigating Fletch, who is an investigative reporter. Why not? What are your additional thoughts and or questions? I didn't realize this. I knew Chevy Chase was pretty big in the 80s. Do you know how many movies he made? Or was in in the 80s, Jason? You want to take a guess? Uh, I'm going to guess. Not that he necessarily had the starring role, but he was in them at some point in the movie. I'll say 12. It's actually higher, but not too bad. 17 movies in the 80s. Wow. No, I wouldn't have guessed yeah. that high. I thought I was going high with 12. Yeah, I couldn't believe that when I saw that. So this leads me to my next question. What is your favorite Chevy Chase movie that does not involve Fletch or Vacation in the title? Great question. I need to look at his IMDb. I got to look at his Yeah, it took me a while to try to think of something else. Because I can't... Hmm. I'd have to say Caddyshack. That's what I came up with. But I think that's... I, I mean, that sounds pretty obvious, mm -hmm. right? But I can't think of anything. Nothing else jumps out at me. Right, that's I mean, the thing. When you look at the uh, rest of it... What, like Memoirs of an Invisible Man or... Is that the yeah. name of the one that he was in? Yeah. 
I know I'm missing. So I apologize. I'm missing some other obvious ones. And I was just looking as a filmography. It's just escaping me at the moment. But yeah, Caddyshack is the one. I, I mean, I love him in that. And he's not even in it that much. I wish he was in that movie more. Actually. But he is considered one of the main stars of that movie. He does have kind of a big part. Yeah. yeah. Because when you really look at his filmography outside of Caddyshack, Vacation, or Fletch, you, know, you have Oh, Heavenly Dog, Under the Rainbow, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos. Oh, sure. Of course. Oh, my gosh. Duh. Yeah. Wow. Talk about dropping the ball. I'm a big Three Amigos guy. See, I'm not. I went with Caddyshack. My honorable mention is, I don't know why I used to watch this movie a lot. I just enjoyed it. I don't know if it's a great movie because I haven't watched it in forever. For some reason, I had like Funny Farm. Oh, wow. That's a great call. I love that I, film. That one I can't wait to revisit. I adore I that I can't wait to movie. revisit that one to see if it's still good or not. But yeah, I used to watch that one all the time. I don't know. Yeah. I yeah, sorry to cut no. you off. Yeah, no, I just looked up that clip where he's breaking the record for eating the, uh, was it like sheep testicles yep. in that movie? <laughs> I watched that recently. I adore that movie. That's a very easy, feel-good movie. I think it, it may not be laugh-out-loud funny like some of his other films are like Fletcher right. Vacation, but it still, I don't know, warms the heart. There you go. Kind of yeah, movie. that's what it is. It's not outright funny, but there's just funny something fun. about it. There's just, I was, I just... I don't know. It just appealed to me. It's a nice seasonal film. I love the location mm-hmm. when the winter comes. They're celebrating Christmas, I believe, in, in that film. Community aspect. Oh, yeah. Anyway, good stuff. Yeah, great question. Did you have anything else? I have another question. No, no, I didn't. All have right. Much so this here. was a surprise to me because Michael Ritchie did not, who directed the movie, just for some reason did not stand mm-hmm. out to me, and he did direct Fletch Lives. But when I looked at his filmography, I was like, holy shit, he's actually done a lot of good movies. So I'm going to see how many of these you've actually seen and which one is your favorite. Okay. I picked out the highlight ones. Great. So Michael Ritchie's done Downhill Racer, The Bad News Bears. Yeah. Oh, semi-tough. Wow. Um, the Island, which is based on the Peter Benchley book. Uh, the Survivors with Robin Williams. Fletch, of course. Uh, Wildcats with Goldie Hawn. Worked with Eddie Murphy in The Golden Child. And then Digstown. Okay. There's a ha- few of those I've actually never seen, but Bad News Bears and Golden Child were big ones for me. That's, yeah, I would have not known that had you not presented the list. That's great stuff. Michael I Ritchie. I love I Dixie. No I did not realize he was directed that. That's one of my all time under the radar favorites. There you go. Well, it's a boxing movie too, so I love boxing movies. He's not related to Guy Ritchie by any chance, is he? No, I don't believe so at all. He's got a really good filmography. Not bad. Not yeah, that too shabby at all. director we never talk about, but yeah, he's a lot of solid work there. I would not mind having Michael Ritchie's career. Absolutely. So let's move on to our rating. So what is our rating for Fletch? So on a scale of one to five ball bearings, what do you give Fletch? I'm giving Fletch four and a half ball bearings. That's right. For me, this movie is just smooth sailing, an hour and 38 minutes, as I've said a couple times already, and it's done. Chevy Chase's delivery, Chevy Chase's disguises, Chevy Chase's identities, Ted Nugent, Gordon Liddy, Harry S. Truman, Andrew Bergman's script, Harold Faltermeyer's score, what's not to like. It's an 80s all-time classic comedy. Yeah, there's a couple scenes I would cut if I had to. Uh, the plot is a bit much at times, but... That's just enough to dock at a half point for me. And uh, yeah, Gina Davis plays a character named Larry in this. 
So there you go. Four and a half ball bearings for me, Bill Bat. How about you? I'm giving it four. Yeah, like I said, I think this is one of uh, Chevy Chase's best roles. Focus on the comedy. Don't focus on the plot. It'll make your brain bleed. But it does actually make me want to go back or go and actually find these uh, books that I have not read and start from the get-go. So um, sure, definitely a character I wish we saw more of in film, and this was definitely a good start to it. All right, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Bloodsport with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Go join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. Can I borrow your towel for a sec? My car just hit a water buffalo. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.